This episode of Key to Success is part two of our interview with Trevor McCourt, Google TensorFlow quantum researcher and Caltech PhD candidate, who will talk about why he turned down MIT, what kind of work he does, and some final advice. Enjoy. Okay, so the big question now is, why did you turn down MIT for Caltech? Yeah, I still ask myself if that was the right thing to do. It was really, really 50-50. That was a really hard call. Um, but ultimately, it comes down to the approach Caltech has to research uh, is very fundamental. So Caltech is very focused on learning first principle things about physics, whereas MIT is much, in general, is a lot more focused on applications, um, which again is kind of reflected in the in the departments I was applying to. Right, MIT was electrical engineering, and Caltech was applied physics. Wow. But um, it. Yeah, Caltech takes this much more fundamental approach, which I think is important for what I work on, um, because there's a ton of things about superconducting qubits, which is the kind of quantum computer I work on, that are not understood at all. Um, and I think for this, for them to go anywhere, we really need this kind of fundamental approach versus a kind of entrepreneurial approach. I think it's too early. Right. Um, and on top of that, there's just, you know, Caltech is a much, much smaller school, which I like for reasons. Um, because there's less bureaucracy, but also even though it's smaller, there are a similar number of people working on what I'm interested in. Right. So it's it's almost like Caltech is really the origin of quantum computing. Okay. Um, so it's really you know where you go to work on this kind of thing, and right. it's it's you know it's pretty much I mean it is the best physics school in the world. Okay. If you look at if you look at you know the standard rankings. For, and I'm not saying you should, I'm not saying it's even a useful metric, but Caltech is like third or something for physics publications and MIT is first. Mm. Uh, but if you normalize that by the size of the school, it's really quite amazing that they can put out what they do. Mm. So really it was just, it was just the better fit, I think. We'll see. <laughs> it's it's <I> still, early. <laughs> I still think about that every night as I'm falling asleep. Cause I think that was really like a, a fork in my life. Yeah. So... Uh, you would have been successful either way, I think. I guess. Yeah, I think yeah. they were both good choices, right? So, yeah. But yeah, it was pretty crazy to turn down MIT because that's basically, you know, since I was very young, I was saying, oh, someday I'm going to go to MIT and then to, not, to turn it down. I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah. So, what's the choice between taking your master's and a PhD or going straight for the PhD? Like, yeah, I mean, what? in Canada, the standard path is master's, PhD. In the States, they just don't do that. It's just undergrad to PhD. Um, right. But same so, amount of time, right? Yeah. Like on, when I'm on my way to my PhD at Caltech, they will give me a master's. But nobody enrolls in a master's in physics in the States. Well, It's just different than Canada. It's not like better or worse. It's just how it works. Right. Now, what about like costs for like doing your PhD? Like how is it paid for? Or do you get, did you get scholarships? Yeah. So it's completely paid for generally. Um, and I would not recommend doing a kind of research graduate degree that's not paid for. I'd see that as exploitation. Oh. But when I go to, yeah, when I go to Caltech, the first year will be completely funded by uh, the department. Um, and then years after we'll all be funded completely uh, through like a research advisor. Right. So my tuition is paid for and then I get like 35 or 40 K on top of that for living. Oh. So it's really quite comfortable. 
That's great. And then, so this thing that you're doing with Google right now, is it linked to Caltech? Like what's the relationship between your job right now in Chilliwack and Caltech? Yeah, I mean, there's technically no relationship. Um, I think there will be collaborations as I'm doing my PhD. So, you know, I'll be at Caltech, but still working with Google on projects and they'll give me additional funding. Um, But I really like having kind of an industry connection to the research I'm doing. So I think it keeps you working on things that are actually useful uh, instead of kind of getting stuck in some kind of academic interest that may not actually be practical. Right. But, you know, technically there's no connection between Google and Caltech. That would be an additional collaboration that we would form. Okay. And then, so what are you doing with Google right now? Is it, did they just move the whole quantum AI thing from California to Chilliwack? No, or is no, it, I'm just remote here on my own. Basically, I, this, so once I, when I graduated in May, um, I just signed up for a summer internship with Google. So right. I didn't have anything else to do. Um, but those were all remote this year because of the coronavirus. So I just did that from Waterloo because I didn't really have anywhere to go. Mm. Um, and then once that was over, I, th- I assumed I was going to be going off to Caltech on like September 20th. Um, but then I just decided to defer that because it would like basically the first year of your PhD is just going to be six extremely difficult courses, six to eight courses. Um, and I wasn't really interested in doing them online. Right. I kind of thought that was a waste of time. Yeah. So instead of doing that, I just deferred my Caltech admissions for a year um, and stayed on at Google because we had some good research going, which I think was the right decision. Um, but that that's still remote. So I could really, you know, as long as I stayed in Canada, I could go wherever I wanted. Um, and I did one co-op out here on the West Coast, that, and I really loved it. So I decided to come back for eight months. Um, okay. And, you know, one of my friends from undergrad got a job in Chilliwack and had a place. So I just came out here living with him. So literally, you're, you're just living in Chilliwack just to hang out? It's, it has nothing to do with Google? Oh, yeah, nothing to do with Google at all. <laughs> okay. It's good to be in the same time zone as everyone else. But, yeah, that has nothing to do with my job because okay. I can work from wherever in Canada. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's a good deal. So how, how does the Google student researcher internship stuff work? Like, how do you apply and, like, what what kind of like things are they looking for as far as like background or year of engineering that you're in or whatever? I mean, as far as I can tell, um, the most straightforward way to get in is to already know them. Mm. Um, I don't, I, yeah, I don't know of too many people that just get it randomly. Um, usually you've are either already working with them on research or you do some really exceptional research that gets noticed by the team and then they kind of seek you out. Um, I don't think it's really a job that you can really just apply for. I mean, you can, but I don't think that's an easy way to get it. And I don't know too many people that have gotten it that way. Hmm. So it's kind of just something like, yeah, basically I have to have a relationship with them already on my team um, for the quantum computing team. Cause it's so small. I, I imagine there's other parts of Google where they just hire interns the same way they'd hire like software engineering interns where you used to fly on the internet and they interview and then they hire you. Whatever. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm probably honestly not the best person to ask because I, my situation was kind of special. Like I was, you know, kind of like quote unquote inside hire. Right. So when you say apply, did you literally just walk up and ask for it? Um, no, because I was just working, like we were working together on this TensorFlow thing and Google had gotten involved at some point. So we had like weekly meetings with people from Google and eventually they're just like, hey, do you want to come work here to finish this for four months? And I was like, yes, I do. <laughs> nice. Are you allowed to explain what your current job is? Yeah, I can explain it at some level. Yeah. Um, so basically we have these superconducting qubits 
Um, what is that? Are, <laughs> yeah. So how, 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 how much you want to know here? Cause I have various levels of explanation for this. So pretend you're explaining it to your like grandmother or your, okay. <laughs> your parents. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I'm not, I'm explaining it to your, 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 your high school class, right? So these are relatively technical people I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> But you know what, you, they, we, we know what like a classical bit is, right? It's like this mathematical idea of a one or a zero, like yes. binary, right? Yes. Um, but then we, we have these, we have transistors, which we use to actually implement the bit, right? Mm -hmm. So there's the mathematical concept of the bit, which is one or zero. And then there's the hardware that actually does it, which is the transistor, right? Yep. So in quantum computing, we have kind of the same dichotomy. We have the qubit, which is a mathematical idea, right? Mm -hmm. And then we have... For example, a superconducting superconducting qubit, which is a superconducting circuit that implements the qubit. Okay. So this you got to separate the mathematical concept of a qubit from the actual implementation, right? The, at the end of the day, what I actually work on is these little loops of aluminum um, in a dilution refrigerator at almost zero kelvin um, that are superconducting, and they have these properties that allow them to emulate qubits. Right. right? So we have these little superconducting loops of metal. Um, in order to, con to control them, we apply these like microwave pulses. Um, and that allows us to manipulate the state of the qubit that it's emulating, right? Right. Um, but you have to apply these pulses very precisely in order to do the actual operation you want without introducing error. Mm -hmm. um, and basically what I work on is trying to make these pulses better so that we have better control over our qubits. So, Basically, my job is fig trying to figure out really precise ways to measure qubits um, so that we can figure out what control sequences we're actually applying and how to modify these control sequences to do better. So how are you doing this remotely? Um, we have like cloud access to all of our stuff in the lab. So it's actually, I mean, even if I was working in California, you know, the quantum computer just kind of sits in the fridge in the lab, and then you're at your computer you know, in the room beside it, querying it. Mm. Um, so it's really no different, actually. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And then how long do you think this particular job will last? Uh, this contract goes until May, and then I'll probably stay over the summer again till September. Mm. Um, and then that's when I'm supposed to start grad school. So I have no idea what happens beyond then. Uh -huh. no, I don't really, I've learned not to assume anything. In, right. in 2020. That's <laughs> true. It's a good, that's a good strategy. Uh, but like, okay, so going back to your PhD and stuff, what, what do you, what's your overall goal once you finish your PhD? Yeah, good question. I don't really know. Um, what, are your, what are your options right now? What, are, what kind of things can you do if you wanted to? Yeah, so I mean, you, one option is just going back into industry, which is reasonably likely. Mm -hmm. um, another option is being a prof. Um, which is something that could happen given that I am going to Caltech. But in order to do that, basically in your first few years of your PhD, you have to have a couple of really good publications, like first author, um, high impact journal articles. And if you don't do that, then um, becoming a prof is kind of off the table. Right. So we'll know pretty quickly whether or not that's going to be an option, or even if I want, I don't know. Um, and then, you know, something else that could happen is some kind of startup um, that comes out of, you know, something I've always kind of wanted to do um, was do some really you know, deep fundamental research, learn some cool technology that has industrial applications and then pursue that. Um, so that's kind of something I wouldn't mind seeing come out of my PhD. 
But nice. really the point of my PhD is to me, is just to learn more things. Right. Um, Cause I think that will make me generally better. <laughs> <laughs> and, and after your PhD, if you wanted to continue to learn more things, what would you have to do? Uh, I mean, that's just when you go into academic research, right? Because yeah. you can't, there's not really any more classes you can take at once you've done a PhD in your field. You've kind of already, you, you basically know all of the foundation. Um, so at that point, you really just join a research group and start working on research. Right. Which is something I think I would enjoy a lot, but we'll we'll see what happens. Honestly, like, I don't even know what my life looks like six months from now um, <laughs> trying to predict what's going to look like five years from now is entirely useless. <laughs> <laughs> so just to put it in perspective, how old are you now and how old will you be when you have your PhD? Yeah. So I'm 23 now uh, and I'll be like 28 or 29 probably when I get my PhD. Wow. So that'll be my twenties basically consumed. <laughs> <laughs> but you could be a prof, but before you're 30, you'd be teaching people. Yep. Yeah, if I if I decide to go that route, by the time I'm 30, I would I could be a prof somewhere. Amazing. Which isn't I mean that's basically you know if you see a young prof, that's usually about how old they are. Yeah, and then you you always have to teach like the under like the lowest undergrad course, right? Yeah. Like they don't give you the fun stuff. The it's always one. Yeah, exactly. First year <laughs> physics. Yeah, I mean that's you know when you when you t- if you go into university engineering school and take these courses, oftentimes you'll even have like postdocs teaching you calc one or linear algebra one, or like brand new profs that aren't even really fully hired yet. Um, so, yeah, that's where you end up. <laughs> nice. We'll see. I really have no idea where I'm going to end up. All I know is that I didn't want to get a full time job yet. So. I oh, went to okay. do my PhD. That's okay. You got a lot of potential. Okay. So I had some questions about Google specifically yeah. because Google has this reputation for like their main campus being like super awesome and stuff. But I think let's start with the, how hard do you think, how hard was it to get into Google and how many people did you have to compete against to get in there? Do you think? Yeah. Actually again, yours was special. My situation was yeah. a bit unique, but it's, ex- it was extremely difficult. So yeah. I, I, you know, I, we built an entire piece of software to get it, to get an internship basically. Um, and I think that a similar level of effort is required just to become like a software engineering intern. Now, instead of, you know, doing this research project, you're probably just grinding a lot of competitive programming questions. Um, but I think really the effort to get into Google is pretty much as high as it can be for a job because everyone wants it. Right. Okay. And what, what's it like working at Google headquarters in California? What's the environment like? What's the office like? Yeah, it was pretty nice. Um, I worked in the Venice Beach office, which was pretty unique. So it was literally like in Venice Beach, Los Angeles, five minute walk from the beach. Like there are surfboards at the office that you could just take and go surf in Venice, which is pretty surreal thinking about it from where I am now in British Columbia. Um, but the office, yeah, the office was basically as nice as you can imagine an office being. Like there was three catered meals a day that were very good. Catered like meals? Yeah. <laughs> what? Like they had people on staff cooking for you. Wow. Meal of the day. And they, I mean, they do that so that you stay there longer, but I didn't mind. Um, <laughs> yeah, they, they, they cooked you every meal you wanted, way better than anything I'd cook myself. And they had every snack you could ever possibly want just sitting there. Wow. Um, and they gave you like all of you know ergonomic desks and all of the newest tech. Um, and then it was really just like all, especially in, in the quantum computing lab, it was all of these PhDs just sitting there that you could just go and talk to. Yeah. Um, 
So it was really, it was a really cool experience. Actually, I miss it a lot these days sitting here alone <laughs> <laughs> in my apartment. <laughs> wow. It was really awesome. Yeah. It, I, I don't think it's overhyped. I think it's correctly hyped. And I went to like the main, like I was in LA and I went to the main campus in Mountain View a few times and it was also equivalently nice. Uh, and that was like, the, that's like the huge one where they have a ton of employees and that was cool. Yeah. What kind of, what kind of perks do they have in those, in that building? In the one I was in? Yeah. What do you mean by perk? Like, do they have like, you hear people talk about, they have like a, like at Facebook, right? They have like a big video game room and they have like these other things. Uh, I imagine we had that. That's basically, I, that, I don't think people actually use those. <laughs> yeah, we did, we did have stuff like that, but ultimately I was there. That was an ex- also an extremely busy time in my life because we were actually trying to launch this product, which we mm-hmm. did. Um, but I was basically working the entire time. So, you know, it was, it was really cool to be in Venice. I was literally living in Santa Monica, like 500 feet from the start of the PCH, which was insane. Wow. Um, but I really didn't even like take time to enjoy it because we were just working so hard. <laughs> the weather was great, but you never noticed. <laughs> yeah, I literally did not go to the beach wow. in Santa Monica and I lived there for four months, like 500 feet from the beach, which was pretty sad. But yeah, we were just working. Um, and that was just kind of the reality of it. And it was worth it in the end. But I kind of sitting here now, uh, unable to go there, I kind of wish I took more advantage of it. Right. But like during these internships that you've held, you never really take vacation, do you? It's just straight up. That's your work period, right? I mean, you can, right? That's one of the things I like about research is you're largely, I mean, you you completely set your own hours Mm -hmm. um, because, you you know, when you're doing engineering, there's hundreds of people that could do your job. When you do research, especially when you kind of get deep into a project, you're kind of irreplaceable. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can kind of just do whatever you want. But the reason that works for the companies is that researchers also usually really enjoy what they're doing. Um, So you find yourself not wanting to do anything else but work. Um, So it's a bit of a strange, weird dynamics. But during my, yeah, during internships, you don't take vacation. You know, and I I don't really think you should. You should kind (laughs) of try and make the most of it to try and learn. Yeah. Because you're never going to have the, those opportunities again. It's true. Given that, given that you're so valuable as a researcher because you become the only person that can do it, how do you determine what your fair pay is? Yeah, that's also a hard one because, the, I mean, the other flip side of that is the fact that you, they, 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 can, they know that you enjoy what you're doing, right? Um, so they can get away with paying you less than maybe they should. But if you're working at somewhere like Google, it's really not a problem. I mean, it depends on what your goal is, right? If you want to, if you just want to make money, you should not go into research. You should just go work at an investment bank or something and get it done. Um, if you, but you know, being a researcher at Google, you make more than enough to be comfortable, and it's not not an issue at all. Um, but how do you, how do you judge your market value? Yeah, it's really what people will pay you and. The other side of, you know, the other other flip side is that usually when what you work on your research is very obscure and not too many people need it. Right. So if you can find someone that does need it, you just generally just kind of stick with it. What's, what's the kind of salary range, uh, low yeah. and the high for a Google researcher? Yeah, uh, for like a full-time researcher? Yeah. I, I think most of the people I know make around 300000 Wow. And how long have they been there researching? Uh, that would be like a new hire out of their PhD. 
would be around 300k wow that's amazing it is yeah it's no like don't get me wrong the the pay is great (laughs) at google um and but you know you're you're also considering someone who spent six years getting a phd yes um so you know if i had started working right out of engineering school i might i I don't think i could get up that high that fast but yeah but no actually you could in silicon valley easily yeah um so you got to consider the the time that was put in to get that PhD as well. True. Um, and then you also have to be good enough to get because this I mean, there's industry research positions everywhere, right? You're gonna have to be at the top to get the position at Google, especially you know quantum computing is kind of special because there's not that many people working on it. Right. Um, but you know, if you take for example like machine learning, which I I know is really popular these days, there's a ton of people graduating with PhDs in that area. Right. Um, and that's also the kind of researcher that Google will be hiring the most. Okay. But that would end up being an extremely competitive position to get that kind of salary. So if a student wanted to get into quantum computing straight out of high school, what would the recommended path be? Um, you can't do it straight out of high school. Um, you, there's, to even understand like the basics of quantum computing, you need a couple of linear algebra courses. Okay. Um, so it's not something I'd recommend getting into straight out of high school. I recommend uh, going probably into physics or electrical engineering in university. Um, take your first couple of years of courses and then start to look into what constitutes quantum computing because there's a bunch of sides to the field. You can work on quantum algorithms, which is really more of a computer science thing. Um, and to, to do that, you really just have to have really deep understanding of linear algebra and then kind of just gain a good intuition of how to design a quantum algorithm. Um, but there's a completely different sides to it. Like you can work on the experimental side where you're literally like, you know, designing these superconducting circuits and trying to figure out how to use them for quantum computing. Right. Uh, and there's like a whole control side to it, right? Where you're trying to figure out how to shape these microwave control pulses to do the operations you want. Um, so there's really a lot, there's a lot to it. Uh, and it's not something you get into right out of high school, but if you think you want to work on that technology, yeah, physics or electrical engineering as your undergrad, take your first few years of courses and then start to look into it. Um, but, you know, a lot of, sometimes at Google, because we're, we're kind of working towards building this million, or, you know, this large scale quantum computer. Um, and we really compare the complexity to this, uh, like the space shuttle. So it's the similar number of parts that are going to be involved um, and, a simple, and the same number of disciplines. So, yeah, it's, it's, it really can't be simplified down. There's, there's just a ton of different aspects to the field. Mm. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Of course, I guess, you know, of course, this is coming from the mechanical engineer who became <laughs> the quantum researcher. Oh, I mean, yeah, anybody <laughs> can do it, right? But, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's not something I started until like my third year of school. Yeah. So it's just like the field is so young that it really requires uh, just the, some background knowledge. Yeah. So did, did you always love math in high school? No, I still don't love math just for the sake of math. Um, I I always have kind of been interested in practical problems. Um, and it just so happens that in order to solve kind of these important practical problems in quantum computing, you need a lot of math. Um, and to, to get an engineering degree, you need a lot of math. Yeah. So I still don't love math. It's just kind of something you need. <laughs> so, okay, I, we're dialing way back now. What was your favorite course in mechanical engineering then? Mm. Just trying to remember what courses I took. Oh, I took in, in fourth year at Waterloo, it's 
kind of cool. They let you take basically whatever you want. Because mm-hmm. um, in, in your first three years, like your courses are 100% chosen for you up to like the arts electives. And then in fourth year, you get to take like seven or eight technical electives, which are just high level engineering courses. And you get to choose all of them. Um, and to, you have to take like four in mechanical engineering. You can take the rest in different departments. So of course I did. Uh, and I took one that was um, called statistical signal processing, um, which basically uh, told you how to deal um, with randomness in, in digital signals, which is really cool because that's, you know, if you have a noisy signal, that noise is actually just a random process. And learning the tools to deal with that has been really useful. Uh, and that kind of taught me all of the statistics that I still know. Um, which is actually what they asked me about most in my Google interview. So <laughs> it's actually extremely important that I took that course. But, so l- luck kind of took a big role in where you are right now. Oh, he, a huge, yeah. I uh, did not mean to end up here, nor do I really have deserved to end up here. It just kind of happened. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good. I think, I think you're fortunate in the sense that you get to do something you, you have a passion for and you, you get an opportunity to be paid well for it and work with other people of the same, right? Yeah, no, it's really awesome. I, I really, really can't complain about where I've ended up. Um, yeah, I'm quite fortunate, I think. I, I don't think it was really skill that got me here. It's just a lot of luck. <laughs> awesome. Okay, I, do you have any final advice for high school students trying to succeed to get into mechanical engineering or considering their PhD path? Yeah, um, I think the biggest thing is just be opportunistic. If someone asks you if you want to do something and you can do it, just do it and try and see what happens. Because kind of the more of these random paths you take, the better chance you have of ending up in one that works. Right? The, the, the thing I see people do that drives me crazy when they're still young is they just kind of get set on something and then they just keep doing it. Um, but you never know what could happen, right? If you just start working on some random project that seems useless. <laughs> I think that's the best piece of advice I could, I could give is be opportunistic and get a TI-89. <laughs> there you go. $100 calculator that you can buy $50 used. That's yeah. number one. Yeah. Oh, and there's also do every question in the textbook. Yeah, do every question in the textbook. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's awesome. Yeah, that's about all I got. <laughs> all right. Okay, thank you so much. I, I learned a lot. It was really cool catching up with you and hearing about your path. I'm, I'm so happy for how far you've come since Danforth Tech and and uh archery which yeah no problem and i think you know i never really took any of this seriously until you taught me careers Aww. so i think that was important <laughs> I, was gonna, I was gonna say you remember we did a careers networking lesson <laughs> we actually did that yeah i don't know if i actually internalized any of that as a kid in grade 10 <laughs> but what the message you did manage to get through was that you should start paying attention and start trying to control your life. Ah. Um, and because of that, I ended up at Waterloo. I don't know if I would have otherwise. And I think ending up at Waterloo was, was important. Um, so yeah, try and, try and be in control of your life, even as a young person. <laughs> ah. <laughs> that's great. That's awesome. Thank you so much. And that's the end of the interview with Trevor McCourt. Come back next week for my interview with an arts major who scored in the 99th percentile of the MCAT and is in the first year of med school.